Okay, we're in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, we're moving on to chapter 6 today. Chapter 6. Let me set this up a little bit for you. I'm going to take a few minutes to kind of build this, this case with you a little bit. Uh, would you agree with me that we live in the midst of two worlds? We live in the midst of two worlds here. Uh, we, we, we know this. It's, it's the battlefield of our life. We see it every day. There's, there's a world of darkness, right? There's a world of darkness, and there's a world of light. There's a world of lies and deception, manipulation, and then there's a world of truth. There's a world filled with selfishness, self-motivation, self-focus, and then there's this other world that, that we enter into as believers, which is the world of sacrifice and service. There's a world of sin and a world of holiness. There's a world of hatred, and when I say hatred, I'm talking more about self-love than outward hatred of others. It's a self-love which is a hatred, really, in a way, versus the other world, which is a world of agape, a world of sacrificial love for others. And then there's the, the, really the worlds we're talking about is the world that is led by Satan versus the world that is led by Jesus Christ. Amen. And we're talking about this today. And then, and then the, the, the other comparison is the, the one leads to eternal death and the one leads to eternal life. Amen. So I think we know these worlds. I pray we know these worlds. I mean, first of all, we were all born into the world of darkness. Amen? We all know that world because that's the first world we entered into. Everybody enters in when they're physically born into the world of darkness. And I don't know how long you lived in that world, but we, some of us lived there for quite a while. So we know that world well. We've, we lived in it. We saw the, the pain and suffering that comes from it. We know that we were born slaves to sin and slaves to Satan. Now, if you asked any of us at that time before we were saved, are you a slave to Satan or sin? What would we say? No. We'd say no. I had no idea. Because see, the reality is there's a veil covering our, our faces, our, our eyes and our hearts to the other world. We don't know about that other world. We know about religion and we know about church and those things, but we don't know about this other world where Jesus is. So if someone came up to me and said, you know, you're a slave to Satan and sin if you're not born again. I'd say, you're crazy. But by the way, the best slaves are those that don't know they're slaves. So that's this world, and I pray each one of you was born again. I pray each one of you was born again. It's the cry of my heart. I pray for all of you on a weekly basis, and I pray that those that aren't saved would be saved. I pray that for each one of you, there was a day when your eyes were open, when that veil was removed, and you got to see your own sinfulness, your own slavery, your own depravity. He opened that veil up, and you saw that. You saw how dirty you were, and depraved you were, and you cried out to Jesus. You repented of your sin, and you were born again, and you were saved. Is that true for you? It's that day we fully trusted on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, And we were forgiven by God and declared righteous by the finished work of Jesus Christ. Yes. And and stay with me, brothers and sisters. Wasn't it amazing as you entered this new world? 
This new world you knew nothing about until you were saved, this new world of Jesus Christ, wasn't it an amazing reality of how all of life changed? I mean, we learned, we learned what true love is. We could really love God for the first time, and we learned how to love one another, and we understood what grace is and mercy is, and for the first time, the Word of God came to life. We entered this whole new world when we were born again. It's a wondrous reality. I think sometimes we take it for granted, but when we're living in this new world, this eternal world of God, it's amazing. I've been rejoicing on that truth all week. It's just a wonderful thing to meditate on, this new world that we became part of. We became children of God. We entered the family of God. We became citizens of heaven. We became ambassadors for Jesus Christ. We became uh, ministers of reconciliation. All these things happen as we entered this new world for Jesus. It's amazing. But now let's get into some difficult things, really, which ties into 1 Corinthians, is that you know, I, wouldn't it be nice if the moment we were saved, we were raptured into heaven? <laughs> so that we were fully in this new life and this new world? But that didn't happen, did it? No. I mean, the reality is true that we're citizens of heaven and, and we're ambassadors for Jesus and all that. But the reality is, is God saved us and then he left us here because why? What's that? Spread the gospel. Because he desires that none would perish and that all would come to repentance. He left us here because there's still other people that are blind to the gospel that, that do not know Jesus. And he left us here because it says in the word of God, until the great commission is fully carried out, then, only then will he return until the great commission is fully carried out. Until every ear is heard the gospel of Jesus, then the mission will be accomplished. And until then, he leaves us here, us born-again believers, to carry out the Great Commission of sharing the gospel, being the gospel, sharing the gospel. And so that's, just, that's, that's his plan for us. And, and we know this, don't we, brothers and sisters, that the battle of the two worlds is intense. It's fierce. It's dangerous. Satan, his demonic army, doesn't want to lose even one soul to the kingdom of God. So he uses the world system. He appeals to our unredeemed flesh. He, he tempts us with all kinds of things to, to keep us locked into this slavery to Satan and slavery to sin. That, that's his goal and his mission. And the reality is, not only does he keep people in the darkness through his deception, he also leads us astray. Amen? We, we, we fall off that narrow path from time to time when we enter into sin ourselves. That's how powerful and dangerous this battle is, is that even us as born-again believers are deceived from time to time, or we give in to the weakness of our own flesh. Let me just show you this. Oh, I better get my... Let me show you this other verse here. I haven't showed you any verses yet. Okay, let me just kind of reiterate this with you a little bit. Just get, I just want you to get a picture of these two worlds a little bit. That's the focus for the uh, teaching today. So at, uh, John 3.19, and, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Do you see that? Who said that? The red letters gives it away. It's Jesus that said that. Jesus said that. He said, so 
He is the light of the world. Now, think about this, brothers and sisters. He's the light of the world, the very Son of God, the promised Messiah. Uh, the Jewish people have been waiting for generation to generation. He shows up. He's, he's the blind see, the lame walk, the leopards are cleansed. He's casting demons out of people. He's preaching in a way they've never heard the word preached before because he is the word of God. Even the dead are being raised. There was undeniable proof that he was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. But the reason I tell you that is that the power of darkness was so strong that people still refused to believe because they loved their sinfulness and the darkness more than they could embrace the light of Jesus. That's the power of the darkness. Even when the Messiah walked this earth, he said they... I mean, just think about it. He says they, they love the darkness more than they love the light. And the second here from John 15, if, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the battle we're in? And by the way, if the world's not hating you, you might not be the, be the bright light that you're supposed to be. Does that make sense? Now, when I say hatred, it doesn't mean that they're throwing stones at your car every day. I'm talking about this issue of you're, you're kind of rejected by a lot of people. You know what I'm saying? You're not invited to certain gatherings. People don't talk to you maybe in your workplace as much as they used to. You're not invited to the lunches and the, the neighborhood gatherings and those kind of things because, see, they, they know who you are. And, and, and it's it's, con- it's convicting when you're around someone of the light. That's the kind of hatred I'm talking about, is that we're, that we're not going around beating people up with the Bible, but we really are born-again believers, and, and we do bring the Word up, and we do talk about Jesus, and we do talk about our testimonies, we do talk about the new life, and to the people that are in the darkness, it is convicting. So the question is, are you convicting is your life convicting those around you where they're being angry towards you? Disliking you? So that's a test, too. But it also shows us the battle that we're in. And then it says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And this kind of gives us this clear picture of the battle. Okay, with that as the kind of the setting for, for the text, if you would open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 6, we're going to work through 1 through 11 here as we see this battle within the Corinthian church. I've asked our brother Joe to come up. This is the first time he's going to read the word for us, I think. So, right, is your first time, Joe? Yeah, Joe's going to read the word for us this morning. And out of reverence for God's word, I'd ask that you please stand. So you got this? Yes, brother. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11. It says, one of you has a grievance against another. Does he dare to go law before unrighteous instead Mm. of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to travel, to try trivial cases? Mm. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. 
Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brothers, go to the law, go to the go to law against brothers, and that before unbelievers. Mm-hmm. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Mm. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men of practice homosexuality. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. 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 Thank you, brother. Thank you. Appreciate it. Let me give you just a little historical context of this scripture, which is important, I think. The Greeks, the Greeks loved law. They loved lawsuits. They loved the pro, they did, they loved lawsuits. I mean, if you looked at the Greeks, the two things they loved, they loved philosophies and they would follow a philosopher. But really, the, the, almost the entire Greek culture was involved in, in uh, legal, legal cases, lawsuits, the whole community. And I'll, I'll just give you a little picture of this. So here's, the, here's how it worked. You had a problem with somebody. The first thing you would do was called private arbitration. The two people had a dispute. Each side was appointed a neutral private citizen as an arbitrator. You, see, you can picture this, right? Two people have trouble. They've got these people that are, they're basically drafted, these citizens that come up and say, listen, you go with him, you don't know him, you don't know anything about him, you go with her, you don't know anything about her, and they have these two arbitrators that go with them, and then there's a third arbitrator assigned as well, and all five of these people get together and they try to resolve their conflict. You could picture that. Okay, so that's phase one. If that doesn't work out, phase two is, then they bring this problem between the two people, this man and woman, the two men, whatever it is, the people, they, they, they go before a court of 40. There's 40 jurors, if you will. And in this case, there's no longer a private citizen arbitrator. There's a public arbitrator, kind of like a public lawyer that's assigned to each one. And by the way, the ruling of, the, of Greece was because they love court so much and court cases so much, that any citizen, once they turned 60, was required to serve as a public arbitrator. So from 60 to 61, you were on call at all times to be an arbitrator for the court system. So they would go before this court of 40. If they still couldn't resolve the case, then the last phase is they'd go to a full jury trial. And by the way, their jury trial wasn't 12 it was several hundred to several thousand jurors in their court case. Can you picture that? It's a coliseum. And the reason is, is because they just love this process so much. It was like reality TV to them. If you, everybody was talking about the cases going on in Greece, right? Hey, did you hear about this one? Oh yeah, they're to the jury phase. They're meeting in the coliseum. There's going to be a couple thousand jurors there for this one. 
And this was their reality TV. This is what the Greeks loved. So I tell you all that historical context. Why is this important? Because we're in this church in Corinth in Greece, and all these people came from that culture. So it's no surprise that they're going to court here, as our brother Joe just read the scripture to us. Now, let me just contrast that, because the Jews, on the other hand, were the closest thing to a theocracy. You know what a theocracy is? It's a nation of people living under the authority of God. They live under the authority of God. They don't live under the authority of man. They live under the authority of God and his word. Israel didn't do that so well, but that was the way it was set up. And of course, we know they rebelled and they, they selected Saul and then David and all the rest of that. But So this idea of theocracy, but see, the Jews would never consider going to a secular court. Their, their problems within the community was solved, first of all, one-on-one privately. Most of them were resolved between the two people. But if it couldn't be resolved, it would come before the elders in the church synagogue. But let's just use our terminology. They would come before the elders in the church to resolve their case. And of course, they had the Supreme Court, which is the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, which were also religious people. But the whole point I want you to hear is the Jews would never consider going to a secular court. Here's the way they viewed it. You would go to a secular court would be blasphemy against God. Because you're saying that God isn't wise enough to resolve our problems. God's words isn't sufficient enough to resolve our problem. So the Jews would see that as complete blasphemy. Why would you go to a secular court? You're saying God is not sufficient. So those are the two views, and now here we're in this church, this Christian church, but of course the Romans considered the Christian church to be part of the Jewish sect, so they also thought that these cases would be resolved within the church itself. And you know, this, this process of, of the Jews solving their own cases was well accepted by the Romans. The Romans did it, the Greeks before them. The Romans said, no, you guys, you're doing a good job. You guys keep resolving your own problems through your own your own churches, if you will, your own synagogues. And the only thing they took away from them was the right to commit anybody to murder. They said, you can't make those cases on your own. That's why we see Jesus having to go before Pilate. Okay, so that's kind of the historical setting. You can understand why this problem is existing within the church. And now let's get into the text, and we're going to look at two worlds, two types of people, two types of wisdom, two eternal destinations in these two worlds. The first one is two types of people. So here we go. It says, when, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? What is he saying? He said, you, 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 you've got this problem between the two of you, and you dare go before the secular court to the unrighteous. That means the unsaved, the unbelieving. He's saying that you're going to people that have no wisdom of God. They, have no, they don't have the word of God. They don't have the Holy Spirit living within them. They, they have no wisdom. It's only worldly wisdom. That's where you're going to solve your cases. Does that make sense to you? He, he goes, I don't understand this. Why you would go to these people that have no real wisdom of God to solve your problem. And then he builds his case here. He says, or do you, do you look at this next verse. Says, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you see that? Did you know that the saints will judge the world one day? If you want to research yourself, I love Bereans. Revelation 2, Revelation 3, Daniel 7. You'll see the truths of this, that the, that, that the saints will judge the world with Jesus. We will sit on the Supreme Court 
with Jesus and the believers will judge the world. Are you ready for that? Now, the apostles themselves, they have a unique calling. They're going to sit on the 12 thrones, and they will oversee the 12 tribes of Israel. But every born-again believer will play some role in the judgment of the world with Jesus. So what, he, what is he saying here? He said, so I want you to know this, that, that you're going to be with Jesus judging the world. By the way, I just want to say something else here. You know, we have a Supreme Court in the United States, don't we? Let me just say two words. They're not. They're not the Supreme Court. All the justices of the Supreme Court will one day come before the Supreme Court. As everybody else will come before the Supreme Court. But the Supreme Court, the true Supreme Court, will be Jesus as the judge, and we will come to judge with him. It's an amazing truth. And then he says, if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you see the case he's making for them? So if you're going to be, and this is for you too, if you're going to be sitting with Jesus judging the world for eternal consequences of people's destinies, right? He said, do you think you might have enough wisdom to kind of work out these trivial, worldly, temporal problems in your lives that you think are so important? Trivial, he calls them. They don't feel trivial to us, but in comparison to judging the world with Jesus, they are trivial. Then he goes a little deeper here. He says, do you not know that we are to judge angels? Do you see that? Now, Scripture is not really clear on exactly the angels will be judging. And I'll say this, that obviously the, we see in Scripture that Jesus will be judging the fallen angels, right? And we may partake in the judging of those fallen angels. That might be what he's talking about. But also this word judging can be translated to govern in the Greek. It could be translated to govern. So he could be talking about the holy angels. We will govern the holy angels as we rule the new heavens and the new earth. We've got a pretty big job coming here. Everybody <laughs> else feeling this? We've got a pretty big job. So he's saying that, you, you hear what he's saying, he says, you don't realize who you are. You don't realize who you are in Christ. You don't realize your identity and your, and your position. And he goes, you're going to be judging the world. You're going to be judging the angels. He goes, you're, 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 you're focusing on these trivial little cases when you should be focusing on setting your heart and minds on things above, not on the things of the earth. And then he says, how much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? He's reiterating this. He goes, I don't understand why you're doing this. Why are you laying it before these secular, unsaved people? And then he closes here with this section. He says, I say this to your shame. Can it be there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. I love what he says here. He says, he goes, come on now. He says, you, you, in the whole church, you can't find one wise enough to, to, to work this thing out between these two? There's not one wise person in the whole church? He's obviously being facetious. He's just saying, come on. You, 
Every born-again believer has the wisdom of God. They can pray and God will give them wisdom. Every born-again believer has the word illuminated by the Spirit of God that lives within them. Everyone can cry out to Jesus who is seated at the right hand of the Father interceding for them. What don't we have access to that can prevent us from making wise decisions when there's trouble in the, between a brother or sister? Is everybody with me on this? Okay. Look, look at this. This is just, we studied James recently. I just thought this was a beautiful picture of what he's talking about. It says here, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but this is earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom. For, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every evil every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first, listen to this, the wisdom from God is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Isn't that beautiful? It's a beautiful picture of earthly, a worldly wisdom, these two wisdoms, which is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic, versus this wisdom from God, which is pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, merciful, impartial, and sincere. So the two types of people he's trying to get through to, to the church, just reiterated through, through these texts, it says, so what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that he did not know them. Do you see that? And then the second one, Ephesians 2, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. And third, kind of the power we have in this process is Ephesians 1.3. It says, Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with some spiritual blessings in Christ. Every spiritual blessing in Christ. Thank you, Demetrius. So, so we see here what he's saying is that you, 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 church, you've lost your focus. You don't know who you are. You don't know who you are in Christ. You don't, you don't understand. You're, you're, you're leaning on worldly wisdom. You're not leaning on godly wisdom that he's given you. He's given you all the resources, all the tools, everything you need to do it, and yet you're falling back to worldly wisdom and letting secular courts decide your problems. You got that? Two types of people. That's what he's talking about. Saved and unsaved. Lost and saved. Okay, so then he goes on to the two, the two types of, of wisdom in the next section here. You only have three sections. You're doing great. So it says to have lawsuits at all with one another is already defeat for you. What's he mean by that? Does that mean that we're never going to win a secular court case? No. He says, even if you win the secular court case, you've already lost because you went to a secular court case. Are you with me on that? He said, you may win before man, but you're going to lose before God. Because you've gone against the will of God. God does not want you doing that. So by going to this court case, he said, you've already lost in the eyes of God. And Paul's trying to tell them what the Jewish people had 
been raised on, which is when you go to a secular court, you're saying God's word is not enough, God's wisdom is not enough. Basically, God is not sufficient. It's God plus something else. Also, the reason you've lost just by entering into this lawsuit is you've lost your witness to the lost and dying world. They see you as no different than the world, and so your testimony has has diminished before the unsaved. Are you with me on that? Is everybody all right? All right. So he's saying that's why you've lost uh, before you even enter the courtroom. And then he gives you a list. He goes, why not, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Do you see this? See, you know, what's the big deal? Wouldn't you rather lose something financially, maybe lose some reputation or, or something physical or worldly to remain in good standing with God? He said, or is it that important that you go win this court case so that you could say, yeah, look at this check I got. I took him to court. I cleaned him up. Look at him. He's in jail now for the way he defrauded me. And he's saying, of course, he's talking about between believers here, right? Between believers. It's within the church he's talking. He said, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers by taking this process of going to court. You know, I would just tell you it's, it's not easy. I don't know if you've been in situations like this, but it's not easy to obey this process. I can tell you one testimony in my own life. There was a, I had an employee who I'd hired and trained thoroughly in our engineering process and you know, we have a unique way of doing our, what we do in our, in our market. And, and so every, every employee has to sign a non-compete. So it means if they leave my employment, they can't go to somebody else to take our ideas that we train them in. Does that make sense? So, but this man, he professed Christ, but never saw fruit in his life. But he not only quit our company, but he stole our customer list. And he went across the street and hung his own shingle out to directly compete with our company. So I'll just tell you in the flesh, I wanted to clean his clock. I mean, I I knew that I had the resources that I could take him to court and keep him in court for a couple years where he would eventually just go bankrupt and lose his home and lose everything. Because I'll just pay a lawyer to be there. I was a bigger company. He was a startup. He didn't have the resources. I was was ready. I could smoke him, right? (laughs) But I have, I have a wise, godly corporate lawyer that I went to see. He's a godly man. And he sat down with me and kind of shared this truth. He said, you really want to do this? I mean, he goes, you're going to win. You'll win. He goes, no doubt. With this agreement you have, and he not only left, but he stole your customer list. You've had verification because he was calling our customers. And he says, do you really want to do that? He goes, I'd count you not to do that. He goes, just focus on your business and what you do and doing what you're doing right and just focus on that and don't focus on him. You know, God will take care of him. And that's what we did. And you know, I thought he was going to go out of business within a year. He's still in business, but he's a one-man operation still. But, you know, I've seen him at trade shows and you know what? He's ashamed. He knows what he did. He's convicted of that, even though he's never repented. But the freedom we had, and plus I have a lot of employees that don't know Christ, and they saw how we handled this, and they said, you know, something different. You know, he could have smoked that guy. He didn't do it. And I would tell them, I said, it's not me. Trust me, it's not me. 
It's Jesus in me. It's Jesus in me. I can tell you, I would wake up and have some sleepless nights and say, oh man, I, I got to bring this guy down. And you pray your way out of it. And, and, and there's a freedom in that. So it was, I, I see the truth in this. It was a great testimony to the lost. I had freedom where I didn't have to have that burden. You know, you never win a fight. You know that, right? So I would never have peace. In fact, I was going to share this with you. In John MacArthur's church, the statistics he had, there's attorneys, attorneys in his church that help people see this truth. Now, stay with me on this. 90% of the Christians in, in the church that were fighting, he, 90% of them, he gets them to agree to resolve it peacefully within the body of Christ. Are you with me on that statistic? Nine out of 10 come under this lawyer's counsel and they don't take each other to court. And without exception, every one of those people are living with love, joy, and peace. Are you with me? He says, without exception, they're all totally peace-filled and joyful about the decision they made. The 10% that refuse to take his counsel, he said, without exception, are bitter, vengeful, and angry. I guess that shouldn't surprise us. This is the Word of God. So. And the third and last one is two eternal destinies. So we have two types of people, Paul's saying, you're believers and unbelievers, two types of wisdom, godly wisdom and worldly wisdom, and two eternal destinations. We know what those are. It's heaven and hell. He starts off by saying, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He's saying, don't be deceived. You come to believe that everyone's going to heaven. That's not the case. Those who choose to continue to live in their sins will, will never enter the kingdom of God. Let me clarify that, though. Do believers sin? Yes, we sin. He's talking about people that refuse to repent. They're not born again, and they, re- they, hate the, they hate the light, they love the darkness, and they never turn their life away from that lifestyle. Are you with me? Those are the people he's talking about that will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he gives a list here. As Pastor Tyler pointed out, this is not a, an all-inclusive list, but it gives us the major categories of sins. It says, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor, a lot of your translations say, effeminate, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's a pretty big inclusive list, is it not? Do you know what all these are? Let me just go over the list a little bit and give you definitions. Sexually immoral, also fornicators, what's that? It's a general term for sexual sins, but specifically it was talking about sexual immoral between unmarried people. It's when a man and a woman were having sexual activity outside of the marriage. That's called fornication. Yes. Thankfully, we don't have that problem in our day. Some of these things are gone now. <laughs> I would say that it's, uh, by the way, you know, I'm going to tell you this, I'm going to tell you more than once, there's nothing new under the sun. It was just as prevalent in Greece and Rome as it is in our time. We think that we're something special. We're nothing special when it comes to sin. They had it pretty well dialed in. Are you with me? So the, that's the first one here is this, this fornication. The next one is idolaters. And 
We've studied this. It's the worship of false gods, false religions, people, things, comfort, pleasure. Uh, people can, can idolize bitterness and revenge. It can be physical, emotional, and spiritual. I can go on and on. It's anything that occupies your hearts and minds. It's anything that, that your life focuses on. It's, a, it's what you worship, even though you don't call it worship. That's the idols in our lives. Amen. And by the way, I'll just tell you, because we we've already taught on this, you'll find that you'll have some idols which are really just supportive uh, characters in your, in your cast because you have a big central idol, which is always us, by the way. But these other idols lead up to the big idol in our lives. Does that make sense? So I may say I have the idol of alcohol and I'm drinking all the time, but there's another idol behind that. It can be comfort. It can be peace. It can be something else I'm trying to get from drugs, alcohol, sexual morality. Are you with me? That's my two-minute version of that. But. So then we have adulterers. We know what that is. It's when married people in, uh, indulge in sexual activity outside their marriage. Effeminate, what's that? Does anybody know what that one is? The takers of the receivers of the, the other one. Well, actually, the effeminate is, is some, it's a man or women that dress up like, so it's a man dressing like a woman or a woman dressing like a man. That's effeminate. And if you have an ESV, it, doesn't, it just says homosexuals, but there's a footnote on there which will tell you exactly what I just said in the ESV. It notes it in your footnotes of your ESV study Bibles. So it's men and women dressing like the others. Now, <laughs> you didn't think they had that back then, did you? They, <laughs> let me show you this verse. Here's Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 25. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. This was written 3,500 years ago. 3,500 years ago. Men were dressing like women, and women were dressing like men. Nothing new under the sun. See, the reason I tell you that is our culture gets so prideful, we think that we're, we're evolving so much that, you know, we, we have this superior intellect, and, you know, this is the way it's supposed to be, and, 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 and we have to embrace homosexuality and transgender because we're, a, we're an evolving, brilliant culture. The same stuff was going on 3,500 years ago. They didn't even have electricity yet. They didn't have cars. They didn't have cell phones. Same stuff was going on. Homosexuality, we know that that's, that's condemned throughout Scripture. You can, if you don't know, look at Sodom and Gomorrah, completely destroyed by God for the practice of homosexuality. And by the way, prevalent in Roman Greece, it, it is, uh, Socrates was a professing homosexual. Plato as well through his writing. Fourteen of the first fifteen emperors of Rome were professing homosexuals. When Paul was writing 1 Corinthians, Nero was the emperor, and he had taken a young boy, castrated him, his name was Sporus, and made him his male wife. Nothing new under the sun. Oops. Am I in the right spot? Yeah. Okay. So then it says uh, thieves greedy or covetous, drunkards, revilers. Those are people that destroy others through their tongue, swindlers. He says none of them are going to inherit the kingdom of God. None of them. If they continue to live in that sinful pattern, they're not getting in. But here's what he's getting to. I gave you that list, but he says, and what does he say next? Such were some of you. you. And such were some of you. You hear that? Such were some of me. I was. 
Were you one of those? I'm on the list. I'm on the list. But he says, such were some of you. You're not there anymore. You've been delivered from that. That's, I'm going to tell you, that's why I got a big problem with Alcoholic Anonymous. When you stand up and say, hi, I'm Keith, I'm an alcoholic. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm an ex-alcoholic. I'm an ex-adulterer. I'm an ex-murderer. That's me. They're all exes. Because I'm a new creation in Christ. Right? So that's what he's saying. Such were some of you. And he's getting back to their identity, brothers and sisters. He goes, come on, wake up. You're living like the world. You're going to the world's wisdom. You're going to the world's courthouses. You're a child of God. You've been delivered from all this by the blood of Jesus. He says, you're, and you're acting like the world. Look at this. He says, and such were some of you, but you were washed. Do you see that? You were washed. That's such good news. Do you remember when he washed you? See, we didn't realize we were sinners, but then the veil got pulled back and we saw, oh, were we ever dirty? We were dirty. There's no way we could clean ourselves up. But then Jesus comes down from heaven with that holy brush, that holy... (laughs) With soft bristles, but it got the dirt off. (laughs) But he came and he scrubbed us, did he not? He scrubbed us clean, completely clean. He washed us by the blood of the Lamb. Do you remember that? Yes. What a day that was. He came down and washed us. And then the next word is sanctified. Because, you know, remember Peter at the, at the Lord's Supper and he, Jesus is washing their feet and Peter's telling them, no, don't wash me. And then he goes, well, if you're not, you're not going to be part of the kingdom of heaven. He says, well, then wash my whole body. And what did Jesus say? I don't need to go there, Peter. Because you've already been washed. You've already been washed by the blood of the Lamb. But I do need to wash your feet and you do need to wash your hands. What is that? That's sanctification. Sanctification means we've already been, we're, we're sealed and secured forever. You can never lose your salvation because we've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. But the sanctification process is really every night I need to confess some sins. I either lost my temper, I had an evil thought, or today I was speeding down Horror's side streets. You know, I have to confess that before the Lord. And that's the sanctification. That's washing our hands and our feet. And then he said justified is the third thing. And you've been justified. What does that mean? That, that is the truth, brothers and sisters, that we couldn't wash ourselves. We, you know how it is when you see your sin, you say, you know what, I'm going to get cleaned up, then I'm going to go to church. You're filthy. You can't do it. The only way that we can be clean is justified means that we trust in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. It's his work alone. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, that one is saved. That's what he's saying. You've been justified by Jesus and by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that awesome? So I pray that we, too, understand these truths that there's two worlds, and that in these two worlds, there's two types of people, and the last thing we want to do is be born again and live like the world. It's the last thing you want to do. It's the last thing you want to do. Where are you going for your wisdom? The world? Facebook? Internet? Just Google search it when you need some answers? Smartphone. The only reason I have a smartphone, it's smart because it has the Word of God on it. We go to God for our answer. We go to godly counsel for our wisdom. We don't go to the world for our wisdom.
And then there's two destinations. I pray that you're born again. If not, I pray today's the day you're saved. 